You're listening to The Briefing, first broadcast on the 27th of November, 2023, on Monocle Radio. It's 17.30 in New Delhi, 1400 in Helsinki, midday here in London and 7am in Washington, D.C. You're listening to Monocle Radio. The Briefing starts now. Hello and welcome to The Briefing, coming to you live from Studio One here at Midori House in London. I'm Vincent McAvinney. Coming up on today's programme, with the four-day truce between Israel and Hamas almost over, we assess what might happen next. Then... This puts border cities, such as Lappenranta, in a challenging position as they depend on the cross-border traffic. We dispatched our Helsinki correspondent to a town near the Finnish frontier with Russia, after Finland closed all but one border crossing with its eastern neighbour. We'll review the papers with Monocle senior correspondent Fernando Augusto Pacheco. Hello, Vini. Today we talk about the future of Brazil-Argentina relations and a box office update. Plus the latest from last night's Booker Prize ceremony. All that right here on The Briefing with me, Vincent McAvinney. Now, the four-day pause in fighting between Israel and Hamas has seen dozens of October 7th hostages swapped for Palestinian prisoners, but is still expected to finish tomorrow. Hamas says it wants to extend the truce. Israel has seemed open to this if more hostages were to be released, but its defence forces are reportedly concerned this will give militants in Gaza more time to redeploy fighters and weapons. Journalist Ruth Michelson has been covering the truce agreement. Ruth, thank you for joining us. Firstly, how has this truce actually operated in practice over the weekend? Well, what we saw was that um, the ceasefire went into effect early on Friday morning and that every day that that has happened, um, that there has been a series of hostage releases uh, by Palestinian militants in the Gaza Strip in exchange for uh, Palestinian prisoners held in Israeli prisoners in prisons, and generally the ratio has been um, about one Israeli prisoner for every two, uh, one Israeli hostage for every two Palestinian prisoners um, held in Israel. Um, and we've also seen the release at the same time of some um, Thai and uh, Filipino seasonal workers that were also taken hostage uh, by Palestinian militants early in October. And did Israel get back the hostages it was actually expecting uh, in these initial swaps? And what conditions have they been in? Well, I mean, what we've seen and what what we learned about the negotiations was that the the purpose of this round of releases was um, what somebody with knowledge of those talks described to me as kind of low-hanging fruit, that it was, um, this is an agreement that was focused on swapping women and children for women and children. So the majority of hostages um, that were released are um, uh, mothers with their children, and then the majority of Palestinian prisoners that were released uh, from Israeli prisons were prisoners who were arrested as children. And as we stand right now, obviously things shift quite quickly in in this. Could we see this truce being extended or are we more likely to have a resumption of fighting and then more negotiations and then another truce? 
Well, we're certainly seeing this increased pressure um, on the extension of the truce. So um, just now, uh, Jens Stoltenberg, the head of NATO, came out and said that he would like to see the ceasefire extended. Uh, There were certainly some statements um, from US President Joe Biden, who said the chances are real that this, um, this could be the the door to a longer ceasefire, in his words. Um, and certainly the negotiators of this agreement said that this was really just meant to be the beginning, that this was meant to be this initial swap of um, civilian hostages for people held in Palestinian, uh, Palestinians held in Israeli prisons, and that this was meant to be a kind of litmus test to show that um, there could be more discussions and more exchanges. Um, we've seen that the Israelis, um, for example, um, one of the Israeli government spokespeople, Alan Levy, um, has said just now that um, they're aware that, of Hamas saying that they're um, that they've said that they would like to extend this truce, and that you know they're certainly uh, considering it. They've said that um, the Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu talked about um, the possibility of uh, basically saying that there would be an additional. Uh, 10 hostages freed for each additional day of the truce. So that seems to be what's on the table and what's being discussed. The question is whether that's actually achievable before tomorrow morning. Um, There were certainly some statements uh, from the Qatari prime minister talking to the Financial Times saying that the issue here would be that um, these additional hostages that might be freed are not necessarily held by Hamas. They're held by other groups within the Gaza Strip. And so it would be the pressure is on Hamas to show that they would be able to find these additional 40 people, uh, women and children, who are believed to be held captive in Gaza uh, by these other groups, and that they could show that they would now be exchanged for uh, a longer ceasefire and for other prisoners. And Israel has, during you know, faced increasing uh, global pressure. It's had a little bit of a reprieve with agreeing to this truce. Uh, is a resumption of fighting now going to attract even more criticism, do you think? That's quite possible. I mean, I think it's it also depends what nature that fighting takes. We've seen uh, statements from the Israeli side talking about, um, you know, continuing if, if fighting resumes to that the fighting would focus on southern areas in the Gaza Strip where they have uh, demanded that over a million people flee from the north. Um, and so the nature of these attacks, the kind of humanitarian crisis that we are seeing as a result, um, and the discussions around what aid is being let in, which is very much bound up within this hostage deal, all of these are contributing to those criticisms because we are increasingly getting a picture of Gaza as a whole, especially southern Gaza, and the destruction in the north of the Strip that really adds up to a serious humanitarian crisis there. Ruth Michelson, thank you very much. Now here's Carlotta Rabello with the day's other news headlines. Thanks, Vincent. New Zealand's new right-wing government has been sworn in, making Christopher Luxon the country's 42nd Prime Minister. Luxon's National Party formed a coalition with Libertarians Act and Populists New Zealand First. They are expected to reverse several of the previous government's key policies, including a world-leading smoking ban for young people. Six teenagers will go on trial today in Paris over the 2020 beheading of a school teacher. Samuel Paty was killed by an Islamist extremist after showing students images of the Prophet Muhammad. The teens face charges of criminal conspiracy and false accusation in relation to the killing. 
and Indian and Chinese tourists will be allowed to visit Malaysia for 30 days without a visa from December. Prime Minister Anwar Ibrahim made the announcement in a speech at his People's Justice Party Congress. India and China are Malaysia's fourth and fifth largest tourist markets. Those are today's headlines. Back to you, Vincent. Thank you, Carlotta. Now, seven weeks of war have tested and strained Israel's relationships and alliances around the world. They've also thrown up some surprises reflective of a shifting global order. India has long been a supporter of the Palestinian cause. However, Prime Minister Modi condemned Hamas's initial attack and the country abstained from the October UN resolution, which called for a humanitarian truce. Nicolas Blarel is an associate professor at Leiden University specialising in Indian relationships in the Middle East and the author of The Evolution of India's Israel Policy. Nicolas, thank you for joining us. Firstly, for background for listeners, India had a very strained relationship with Israel, voting against its founding uh, and not even recognised it, it until 1992. But relations have been easing in recent years, haven't they? Yes, well, first... Thank you for having me on the show. Uh, yes, that's a good um, historical perspective. The relations were strained until the early 90s and then have developed relatively well, especially on the defense side. India is one of the biggest uh, markets for uh, defense exports from for, from Israel, but there's also been uh, trade and agricultural cooperation. Now, under Modi, since 2014, the relation has, I think, been upgraded, especially a very strong public embrace, uh, notably between Prime Minister Modi and Prime Minister Netanyahu, who have a, uh, who hold a very strong um, personal relationship, and uh, Modi was actually the first Indian Prime Minister to visit Tel Aviv in uh, 2017. So the relationship has been more public, and uh, you see also a slight change in the votes um, in UN General Assembly votes, notably maybe a dilute dilution of the supports, uh, the traditional support to his Palestine, and more and more votes aligning or abstaining when it comes to Israel. And has Modi been the driver of this? And you mentioned, obviously, the close relationship uh, with Bibi. Or is this something in Indian society that has shifted over time? I think there's a bit of both. I mean, Modi and his party, uh, the Bharatiya Janata Party, so the Indo-Nationalist Party, have traditionally been uh, um, close to uh, or at least have uh, admired uh, the Israeli uh, state nation, uh, nation state model. Uh, I've, uh, there's also been a closeness between Modi's government and uh, and Likud and uh, Netanyahu's government. So there's always been this fascination for that, that particular kind of religious nation-state model uh, for the Indo-Nationalist uh, parties. Uh, but th- so there's that ideological perspective, but also there's been more and more cooperation on counterterrorism. And that, I think, there's a broader public opinion in India that's more sympathetic or empathetic, let's say, of the uh, terrorist threat that Israel has been facing because they see some analogies with some terrorist attacks that have also uh, struck India over the last few decades, um, the cross-border terrorism, proxy terrorism sponsored by uh, external states. So they see this as uh, uh, facilitated cooperation between the two states. And in particular at the moment with the anniversary, the 15th anniversary of the uh, Mumbai attacks. Yes, that's actually a very uh, good example of the uh, shared threat for both countries because in the Mumbai attack in 2008, uh, there was a Jewish uh, center that was attacked by the um, the Lakshar Taiba, which is a group sponsored or supported at least by the by Pakistan, and uh, the attack basically they were mostly Indian uh, citizens that were victims of fat- fat- fatalities, but they were also 
uh, a few Jewish uh, and Israeli citizens. Um, so this is actually something that uh, both the Israeli and the Indian government are pushing to promote as um, uh, as uh, broadcasting the need for further cooperation and that they're sharing uh, similar threats. And uh, the, uh, the Israeli government just uh, uh, put uh, the Lakshar Taiba as a list of terrorist organizations that are a threat also to Israel. And they're expecting maybe India to follow up by also then putting uh, Hamas as a terrorist, uh, listing Hamas as a terrorist organization. So this could promote further cooperation and they, the anniversary is one way to remind that they share similar threats or enemies. Mm. Prime Minister Modi is keen to be a global statesman. We saw that at the recent G20 trying to sort of flex on the world stage. But doesn't it knock him out of alignment with the so-called global south and BRICS nations he's sort of trying to lead if he is changing policy like this towards supporting Israel so strongly? Yes, this is the dilemma, I think, for this uh, uh, government, which uh, for uh, purely internal security reasons or ideological maybe affinities with the Israeli uh, government feels and feels that it needs to support and show its solidarity with Israel in facing terrorism. But if you look at the UN General Assembly vote that you mentioned, it puts also itself as a, at loggerheads with the, the rest of the, the global south, which mostly voted in support of a humanitarian uh, pause in the UN General Assembly. So this is putting uh, Modi and, and India in uh, in a difficult position uh, in, a, in the context of uh, being um, at least uh, labeling itself as the, uh, a spokesperson or the voice of the Global South following the latest, the latest uh, G20 summit. So India has begun to revert a little bit its position and to more, call, call more and more for um, for humanitarian pause, for a resolution to the conflict, reminding its uh, principles position for the two-state solution. So again, India has been hedging a little bit more and not um, trying not to appear to tilt towards too, uh, too much with one side as it, it did in the initial days after the October 7th attacks. And that hedging is very difficult to do, particularly when India wants to have strong relations with other Middle Eastern nations. Yes, India uh, under Modi has got closer to Israel, but also to a lot of the Gulf states, uh, the GCCs, notably the uh, United Arab Emirates and Saudi Arabia. And India is closely looking also at all these um, states are, are are reacting to the situation. So I think because of the close energy, trade relations, and also because India is a major diaspora in that region, in the, in the Gulf states, it will probably also adapt its position and align its position with some of the reactions from that particular uh, side of the, the Middle East, those Middle Eastern uh, regional stakeholders, because it also has a lot of stake there. Nicola Blarel, thank you. You're listening to The Briefing on Monocle Radio. Well, you're back with The Briefing, coming to you from Studio One at Midori House in London. I'm Vincent McAvinney. To Finland next, where authorities have closed all but one of the country's border crossings with Russia after a surge in the number of arrivals by undocumented migrants. Finland claims that Russia is actively involved in transporting migrants to the border with the aim of destabilising Finland after it recently joined NATO. We dispatched our Helsinki correspondent Petri Burstov to the eastern city of La Peranta to find out how communities living near the border have reacted. It's a snowy winter's day in Lappenranta, a city of 70,000 people near the Russian border in southeast Finland. Due to its vicinity to Russia, the city is home to thousands of Russian nationals and people who hold both Finnish and Russian passports. 
Prior to the war in Ukraine, cross-border trade and tourism were key sources of revenue for the city. The war put a stop to Russian tourism to Finland as Finland along with other EU countries imposed travel sanctions on Russian citizens. Despite this, the city's border crossing point Nuyama, one of the most popular on the eastern border, was in active use as those holding dual citizenship as well as permanent residence in Finland would visit their homes and relatives on the Russian side. All that came to a halt when the Finnish government decided to completely close all except one of its border crossings with Russia, citing security concerns after Russia let large numbers of undocumented migrants, mostly from the Middle East, cross into Finland. The reaction to the border closure was strong among Lappenanta's Russian community. <laughs> Ekaterina Marva is one of the hundreds of people who took part in the protest. The reason why is a very basic reason, uh, because we are very close to the border and some of relatives, parents and uh, adult children are on the other part of the border. And uh, that's the reason, the, the main reason why uh, people started to protest. But for me, the second reason is also that um, uh, the human rights uh, uh, question is very important. And uh, for me, the value of uh, refugee life is uh, the same as anyone else in the European Union. And I don't see any reasons why we can't accept refugees if they are coming here. In Finland, there is an overall political consensus on the need to close the Russian border. And this puts border cities, such as Lappenranta, in a challenging position as they depend on the cross-border traffic. So my name is Ding Ma and uh, I'm working as the head of economic development at the city of Lappenranta. If we say before the COVID time and before the closure of the border, uh, the big supermarket in our uh, city uh, is full of the buses from Russia within the tourists uh, who are coming here to buy the groceries and uh, other needs, what they need here. So in that sense, yes, the big changes can be seen in the city, uh, in the service sector, especially when we talk about that. We have even uh, required uh, in many shops that they as a uh, bilingual service personnel, and now uh, the need has been different, obviously. While the city is actively reaching out to new tourism markets and trying to attract people to visit the nearby natural sites, such as the famous Lake Saima, known for its picturesque cruises, Lappenanta is hoping that one day relations between Finland and Russia will improve. Yeah, and I think this is very important for us as a city, as an actor here, to enable a very open dialogue between different groups to listen, to understand. But we need to also understand that uh, there is the war going on in Ukraine, and that is the reason caused by Russia. Marva says she will keep protesting in support of reopening the border. Like most Russian speakers in Finland, she is opposed to the war in Ukraine and does not like the discrimination that she says Russian speakers face in today's Finland. She wants things to get back to how they once were in this vibrant border community.
There were a lot of cultural exchange, so people in the Russian border cities, we were um, learning Finnish, I don't know what is the situation now, and here in La Peranta and other like eastern uh, cities, uh, we were, local people were learning Russian and that, that was uh, quite a popular thing to do. Of course, I would like to save this uh, intercultural community and we have uh, two universities here and uh, strong relations to other countries. So La Peranda was this uh, international city always and now we somehow close or deny part of this. And that's very sad from my point of view, yes. For Monocolin Lappendanta, I'm Petri Burtsov. Petri, thank you. You're listening to The Briefing on Monocle Radio. Now let's have a flip through some of the day's newspapers with our senior correspondent, Fernando Augusto Pacheco, who's with me in the studio. Fernando, where are we starting? Brazil, we have Folha de São Paulo, uh, one of the country's uh, you know, largest dailies. A very interesting story here, Vini. The relationship with Brazil and Argentina might not be as bad as predicted after Javier Millet's victory. Of course, during the campaign, Javier Millet called Lula an angry communist, among other things as well. But uh, the headline says that Millet invited Lula formally uh, to his inauguration. Uh, apparently, Bolsonaro might go as well. And I have to say, Bolsonaro's politics are a bit closer mm. uh, to Millet. But I think Millet understands that Brazil is a very important economic partner. Uh, So, of course, he will soften uh, the tone as well a little bit. And one of, uh, I mean, and and he's uh, practicing what he's preaching because the future chancellor of Argentina, Diana Mondino, on her first international trip, she met her counterpart, Mauro Vieira, and they were discussing about, you know, trade deals between both countries. She even said Brazil is Argentina's main partner. So that's quite... But um, how concerned are Brazilian economists about the plans that Argentina has? Because they're pretty radical, adopting the dollar, getting rid of the central bank. I mean, they've already got hyperinflation in, in effect, haven't they? So... Are they really concerned? Well, I think they were very concerned. Uh, but, you know, the la- the latest news, the fact that Diana went to Brazil, the fact that Millet softened his tone, I think people are saying, you know what, when you are in government, you have to soften your practice. I mean, and Millet doesn't have uh, the majority in Congress as well, so he will have to make alliances. So I wonder how much he will impl- implement from his original kind of economic policies. So I think there's... Uh, more, I think the Brazilian government is feeling a little bit calmer now. Mm-hmm. Maybe not 100% calm, of course, uh, but, you know, there's some slightly optimism here. Mm. Um, and something that I was only made aware of when you told me about this, but Brazil is the global capital for lightning strikes. Yes, we have 78 million discharges every year. And yes, that's a story from Estadão. And the reason for that, because unfortunately, Vini, we have a couple of deaths uh, every year because of it. In fact, on average, there are 83 deaths a year. So I remember when I lived in Brazil, there was always this fear when there was a big storm coming up because... I mean, generally, even your parents say you might be killed. So there's a lot of kind of every year in the newspapers that say how to not get killed by... So there's a big public education, don't stand under a big tree, that kind of thing. Absolutely. Yeah. So they say you have to go to your house or go to your car as well if you can't mm-hmm. go to, to your house. Don't go on small boat trips. If it's a large boat, that's fine. But uh, So it's quite interesting. And the reason I think you were asking me before we, we, we went on air, why is that? It's a simple reason. It's a geographical reason. Brazil is the largest tropical country in the world. So we have a big 
tropical it's area. The humidity that does it. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, Congo is the second uh, country with the highest number of uh, lightnings, and the U.S. as well. But they have significantly less deaths uh, than Brazil, I have to say. Okay. And do you know anyone that's ever been struck by lightning in Brazil? Uh, no, but close. I know a lot of people that that actually said, "Oh my God, it was really like a meter, two meters away." So you hear the stories all the time. So if there's a storm, don't talk on your mobile. Just be quiet <laughs> inside your house. No electricity. I mean, it, it's 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 quite scary actually mm-hmm. um, uh-huh. but you know well, I love watching a lightning storm if you're inside the safety yes. uh, of a house I actually do as uh, well good uh, and shifting gears completely now I saw this film last night Napoleon uh, it's had a pretty good weekend at the box office hasn't it what uh, what are audience saying what did you think well um, yeah this is a story from Deadline a couple of box office updates you know what I liked Napoleon I thought it was visually stunning mm. I think Vanessa Kirby did an incredible job as Josephine it, of course it's it's been a device the film, I think the reviews, especially in the UK and the US, they haven't been that bad. But in France, you know, it, the film was trash. They've been like, you know, Empire, Guardian, Five yeah. Stars, very strong reviewed um, film. I saw it last night. I thought, as you said, the visuals were amazing. The, the battle sequences, obviously, it's Ridley Scott. He's got so much experience doing that kind of stuff. It all looked great. There was something just kind of, I mean, there was one review today, which is it's the horny, humorous Napoleon, you know, biopic you never expected. Mm. It was very intense on their relationship, the Josephine-Napoleon relationship, wasn't it? And I felt like she did a lot of the legwork on that. She, I mean, she's incredible. I mean, I I think we both love uh, Vanessa Kirby's job as well. And I was kind of surprised about how much it focused on the relationship, but I kind of I kind of like that. But I kind of understand why the French critics didn't like because, of course, the film is not historically accurate 100%. Mm. But the French critics might not have liked, but France was one of the biggest markets for the film. I think there's a sense of curiosity. Let's see the second weekend if there will be a big drop or not. But the mm. reality is it's been a big opening in France and people are curious. They're talking about it. And I wonder if the public will agree with the critics on that one. Yeah, and the ball is in France's court to try and make a better film. I mean, they've had decades to do it. Um, and just very quickly, finally, at Disney, again, struggling. Another flop for them in their big centenary celebratory movie. And actually, this film was supposed to be a celebration of 100 years of Disney. It's another animation called Wish. Uh, the global debut was 49 million, but uh, in the US, it didn't do as well as expected. In fact, Napoleon beat that at second place. Uh, you know what? It's It's been a bad year for Disney. I think even Bob Iger, their CEO, agreed. Meant to come back and be the saviour, and it's just not working. And can I give you my personal opinion? I think they need to focus. I think they, they lost the sense of occasion. This mm. year, we had Barbie and Oppenheimer, which was really a momentous. Everybody was talking here it's in the, the office. It's the big movie event of the year. To be yeah. honest, people are not talking here in the office about the Marvels and Wish. I'm not no. saying the Midori House. Very interesting. They've yeah. cle- I'm a Marvel fan, but I've kind of it feels like too much homework now. They've cleared the slate. There's only one Marvel movie in the whole of next year, and they financially need those. But it's interesting that they're saying let's take a step back. Well, Fernando, thank you very much. Well, last night, the leading literary award in the English-speaking world, the Booker Prize, was won by Irish writer Paul Lynch for his book, Prophet Song. 
Monocle Radio's books editor, Georgina Godwin, was there and joins me now in the studio. Uh, Georgina, how was the night? It was fabulous. I am slightly hungover today. (laughs) (laughs) It was really lovely. It was in old Billingsgate, beautiful views of the the river and things. And and honestly, everywhere you turned, there was a different literary luminary, all the past winners, of course, and, you know, wonderful agents and all sorts of people in the the publishing world. And everybody glammed up to the nines. But, I mean, what's really important about it is that the book of foundation is so um, focused on really just inspiring the world to read that's that's what they exist for they want they want the want people to read the, the best new fiction uh, give fresh opportunities for readers to explore hundreds of long-listed and short-listed and winning titles because it sort of works like a kind of kite mark mm. you know a standard if you like and and, and a, a possibly inexperienced reader can think okay well I'll read this one because mm. Booker chose it and you see the stickers instantly don't you when they get the nominations and the wins, you know, books become stratospheric, like thinking about Sugar Burn in recent years that just kind of really then take off that you might not have heard about. Can you tell us more about how it operates and how the winner was chosen? So they have a, a jury. So it started back in, I think, 1969. It's been so I mean, for five decades, it's mm. been, you know, doing this. Uh, publishers submit books for consideration to a panel of judges and then they, they select a long list of either 12 or 13 the, the book a dozen sometimes <laughs> uh, and then uh, it goes down to a short list of six. Now of course this year everybody was kind of made much of the fact that three of the writers were actually called Paul <laughs> there were more Pauls on the list than women and more Irish people on the list than women um, but it was uh, the, 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 the finally getting down to the winner is, is often I mean tricky mm. um, because if there's a deadlock you've vote and vote and vote, which apparently is what happened this time, until you come up with something that everybody can agree with. So this book may not necessarily have been the top one for every judge, but it was the one that they could all agree would win. Yeah. And what kind of effects does it have on a writer's career? Because people might not have heard of Paul Lynch, and I certainly hadn't heard of this book, but I listened to an interview with him this morning and I've been reading about it, and I'm gripped. It's kind of fiction that I like to read. Uh, What will it do for him now? So the winner receives £50,000. Runners-up, I think, get two and a half. (laughs) Which he said he's going to spend on his tracker mortgage because he can't afford it anymore. (laughs) Well, and and at the ceremony, we honoured A.S. Byatt, the writer who died last week, and she won the Booker Prize, famously spending her prize money on a swimming pool. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And then last year's uh, winner, Sheehan Karina Talaka, came and gave away the, you know, handed on the trophy. Mm. And he was saying to me, what you can expect is you will not write a word for a year. You just have to sit back and enjoy it. But Gabby Wood, who who's the administrator of the prize, said, you know, actually what happens is that you get a dramatic increase in book sales. You're guaranteed a global readership. I mean, basically, it is life-changing for authors. Mm. And just to focus on the book itself, Profit Song, it's really interesting. Paul Lynch was writing about sort of near future, slightly dystopian, where his home country, Ireland, slips into totalitarianism. And he was actually writing it through the pandemic. So some of the things he talked about, curfews, lockdowns, actually then he says were happening just after he'd written them and he got a real experience of them. That's quite strange as a writer. I mean, what did you make of the book? Well, I mean, it is, it is as you say, it's a picture of dystopian Ireland and and, and it, it's, it depicts a, a government descending into tyranny. I, I mean, I, I liked that the structure's slightly odd. There are no paragraphs. Um, mm. It's, I mean, it's an interesting book. Paul says that he was trying to see into modern chaos. So he was talking really, I think the allegory he was trying to do was all about Western democracy uh, the problem with Syria, uh, the implosion of an entire nation. I think Ukraine hadn't happened when he was writing it. But he's he's really trying to highlight 
things like the scale of the, the refugee crisis. What he's after is empathy. It's a mm. book that is trying to make... Because it's about you... a single mother trying to keep her family and elderly uh, parent who's got dementia going through society collapsing around them. Exactly. But it, but it does speak to multiple political realities, I think. Uh, and, and the one thing that, that I, I just really wanted to tell listeners that they can find out a lot more about Paul Lynch and about the book next Sunday at noon mm. uh, because that will be the latest edition of Meet the Writers and I'll be in conversation with Paul all about everything that he has done and has achieved and can look forward to. Yeah, and just to touch on one thing you mentioned there, obviously he is Irish, you mentioned that there were you know several people from Ireland in there. Um, it is a, sto- a country that likes to tell stories, isn't it? And, but we often see sort of dystopian fiction in you know the UK, 1984 famously, or in America, The Handmaid's Tale. Is it interesting having it in a smaller country that we might not associate with going down that path? I mean, what what uh, the, it's, it's interesting that you bring up those two books because it's been described as the sort of younger cousin of The Handmaid's Tale in 1984. And the other thing that, that was interesting about that was that uh, the keynote speech was given by Nazanin uh, Zaghari Radcliffe. Mm. And she was talking about how books absolutely saved her when she was in solitary confinement in Tehran. Mm. Uh, and that one book, um, The Handmaid's Tale, translated into Farsi was smuggled into the prison and how she sat and read that and that it was a, a kind of escape for her. In, in terms Quite a dark escape of, when you're in prison. <laughs> in terms of, does it work differently in a smaller place? I don't, I think I mean what he does brilliantly is he captures that chilling feeling. The slow uh, creep. Is exactly. It? Yeah. Uh, and it wouldn't really matter where it was set, you're, you're getting that. It, it, feels, it feels quite claustrophobic mm. to read actually mm. uh, I have to say. It does sound like it's a good trick with paragraphing because Sally Rooney's books drive me crazy for the lack of quotation marks. <laughs> I kind of think just stick to the rules of grammar we've all agreed but it sounds like it does have a really interesting effect in this one I mean, and it's worth, yeah, worth I mean, I it. Have it. I have it here actually and as you can see it's beautifully designed. The, mm. the, cuff, the cover is... It looks like a kind of Matisse it painting. Does. Yeah, It does. And, um, quite, and what I love also at this point is big print. <laughs> <laughs> Um, but it's um yeah it's 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 an it's a really interesting book. Uh, it's his fifth book, in fact, uh, and he has won prizes before, but never the Booker. And I think you know he used to be a film writer. He was a movie critic, mm. uh, and then just decided to you know change his change his focus and has done so absolutely brilliantly. Oh well, best of luck to him and keeping on top of that tracker mortgage. Georgina Godwin, thank you so much for coming in. Go get yourself a LucasAid Sport to recover from the big night. And that's all for this edition of the briefing. It was produced by Lillian Fawcett and Carlotta Rebello. Our researcher was Harrison Warlock and our studio manager was Mariella Bevan. The briefing is back tomorrow at the same time. I'm Vincent McAvinney. Goodbye and thank you for listening. Listening.